Hey everyone, this is Jenna Spinelli from Democracy Works, and this week we are excited to share with you an episode from No Jargon, a podcast by the Scholar Strategy Network. Public policy is complicated, but explaining it doesn't have to be. No Jargon features interviews with America's top researchers on the nation's toughest policy problems, all in half an hour or less and with no jargon. This episode features an interview with Columbia University's Alexander Herdel Fernandez about the influence that three large conservative groups have had on state politics over the past 30 years. Alex and host Avi Green discuss why state governments are susceptible to these groups and what it all means for a democracy. It's a very interesting conversation and one that fits nicely with some of the issues that we've discussed here on Democracy Works. For more on No Jargon, visit their website at scholars.org slash podcast or search No Jargon wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes are released every Thursday. Thanks again to the Scholar Strategy Network for sharing this episode, and we hope you enjoy it. We all like to think that the state government of our state cares about our particular situation in our state and makes policy accordingly. But it turns out that very often that's not the case. In fact, bills get carried from one state to another. And thanks to a set of very powerful conservative groups, state governments have been enacting a conservative agenda in many places and reshaping how politics functions in those states. Who exactly are these groups? And why are state governments so susceptible to their strategies? And what does all this mean for American democracy? Hi, I'm Avi Green, and this is the Scholar Strategy Network's No Jargon. Each week, we discuss an American policy problem with one of the nation's top researchers without jargon. For this week's episode, I spoke to Alex Hurdle Fernandez. He is an assistant professor of international and public affairs at Columbia University and author of the book, State Capture, How Conservative Activists, Big Businesses, and Wealthy Donors Reshaped the American States and the Nation. Here's our conversation. Professor Hurdle Fernandez, thank you so much for coming on No Jargon. Well, thanks so much for having me, Avi. Your book basically begins with this notion that a number of decades ago, a group of conservatives realized the importance of states, perhaps in a way that others hadn't. Can you tell me about some of those initial events that led to one of the main uh, organizational characters in your book, Alec? So take yourself back, if you will, to the 1970s. You know, think of that 70s show. And during that period, it may be hard to, to realize now in a period of, of Republican control of the White House, particularly with such a central figure like Trump. But in the 1970s, it was conservatives and Republicans who felt like they were on the outs on American politics. They didn't have much success in controlling national government, particularly Congress. And at the state level, it felt like Democrats had control of a majority of state chambers. In addition, the federal government had just passed major new expansions of social programs like Medicare and Medicaid and the Great Society, as well as major new civil rights initiatives, uh, too. Add on top of that the fact that public employees, people working for state and local governments like teachers, sanitation workers, and public agency workers had just gained the right to form unions and bargain with government. And these public sector employees were rapidly becoming a really important lobbying force and political force at the state and local level, especially teachers unions. And conservatives looked at that and they said, if we're going to have a shot at 
political control, we have to get our act together, especially at the state level where these new public sector employees were gaining strength. And they thought that that was a path to power, not just to build power over state political decisions, but ultimately a path to national political control as well. Okay, Professor Hurdle Fernandez, so some conservatives realized that these states mattered. What did they do? So at that point, conservatives Uh, conservative politicians from state and local and national political office, along with donors and activists, got together to think about how they could form organizations to build power at the state level. And one of those key figures was Paul Weyrich, a social conservative who went on to found or co-found a number of important conservative organizations like the Heritage Foundation, the Free Congress Foundation, But another organization that he helped to get off the ground was the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC. Uh, Not Alex, I should be clear. It's not you. Yes, no. But Alex's goal was to build power at the state level by giving ideas for conservative legislation to state policymakers and also to bring together uh, religious conservatives, libertarians, wealthy donors, and uh, conservative think tanks to sort of shape an agenda for what states should be doing and build power across all 50 states at once. You make the point that one of the secret sauces of its success is that Alec is able to somehow bring these very different people with different agendas, corporations, et cetera, together to figure out what state legislators should do. Can you talk a little bit about how Alec is able to achieve that? That was one of the most surprising things that stood out to me when I was doing the archival research, wading through Alec's internal documents and conducting interviews with key Alec leaders from the 70s and the 80s. I think we have a tendency to look at the success of conservatives today, especially at the state level, and assume that they must have always had an easy time working together. For instance, bringing together the libertarian Koch brothers along with businesses in the private sector uh, together with religious conservatives. But when you stop and think about it, there's no reason why all of those interests, those different political actors, would necessarily want the same things from government. And in fact, in many cases, they're often pushing in different directions. Libertarians want to reduce the size of government, including subsidies and regulation. Private sector businesses, on the other hand, sometimes like regulation if it means that they can keep out their opponents. And they like subsidies that support their business and their sector. You mean things like spending a ton of money to build a new highway employs tons of private businesses, for example. That's exactly right. Contracting with private sector companies, for instance, to conduct state services or providing subsidies to agricultural businesses um, or farms, for instance, would be examples of uh, business-friendly government programs. And one of the important things that Alec realized was that if it was going to pull together all of these different interests on the right, it was going to have to put into place some rules about who would prevail when different parts of their organization disagreed with one another. If businesses wanted one thing and the social conservatives wanted another, you know, whose opinion would end up winning the day? And so Alec established a careful set of rules that prevented the sort of conflicts uh, and helped prioritize the issues that it was going to pursue in ways that other organizations weren't able to do. So that's, to me, where it gets tricky. So can you just actually explain how this sausage gets made in, like, a specific example? 
Sure thing. Take the example of electricity markets, and that's something that the states, as opposed to the federal government, have historically controlled. Who can produce electricity in particular states and how they produce it and what sort of rates they charge? In the 1990s, Enron, the large energy trading company that ultimately would go down in a scandal involving its accounting practices, was up against the Edison Electric Institute. That's a trade group that represents uh, state utilities producing electricity. And Enron wanted to make it easier to sell electricity across state lines. That was a key part of its business. And the electricity utilities represented by the Edison group was really opposed to that. Both of these business groups were inside ALEC and were both trying to produce model legislative proposals that ALEC would then distribute across the states. And ALEC had set up a rule where if there was a conflict between these different businesses, for instance, over the model legislation that they wanted to produce, it would come down to whichever business paid more to the organization. Now, as I'm sure you can already start to see, that has a couple advantages. One, it's a really clear rule. You can go into the organization knowing how different conflicts are going to result. Two, it's very beneficial for ALEC in the sense that it can raise more money. And three, it allowed ALEC to steer clear of weighing in on any one side. It could remain neutral while the two businesses duked it out. So what happened with this battle uh, with Enron versus the Edison Electric Institute? Ultimately, it was Enron that was able to contribute more to the organization. And so it ended up writing the model bill that got distributed to thousands of lawmakers. And Enron actually gave so much money that it was the headline sponsor of the annual ALEC conference the following year, where the theme was, as you can guess, electricity deregulation. And uh, in the book, I present evidence that ALEC's lobbying efforts across its state networks was a big part of the reason why Enron was so successful in pushing for electricity deregulation in the 1990s. Alex, I want to ask it again, what's in it for business, right? Because I would think that if you're a large business, you might say, well, hey, I'll just hire a bunch of lobbyists and they'll go on their own to Congress and try to get a big national bill. So A, what's in it for them to to care about ALEC as opposed to their own lobbyists and why focus on states? Both good questions. And businesses that have a lot at stake in what government does and does not do spend a lot of money on hiring lobbyists, both of their own and then outsourcing to lobbying firms in order to have an impact on what Congress does. But across the 50 states, that's a lot of lobbyists if you want to have a lobbying presence in each and every one of the state capitals that are making these important decisions. And what ALEC was able to offer to private sector businesses was an opportunity to send in a legislative idea or proposal, and then ALEC would distribute it across its existing network of thousands of state lawmakers. At its peak, there were about a quarter to a third of all state lawmakers that were enrolled in this organization and therefore received the ideas that companies were passing on. But it wasn't just the ideas that ALEC was promoting to lawmakers. They were also giving lawmakers the research help, for instance, or political strategy or talking points and polling that lawmakers might need in order to pass that legislation. Right, and and I actually want to hone in on that word legislation, right? You mentioned model bills before. So in addition to ideas and explanations and research and briefs to back things up, Alec would give to and does give to legislators text that can become laws. So you used that texts or those texts to try to figure out how effective ALEC is and measure that. Can you say a little about what you did and what you found out about ALEC's effectiveness? 
That's right. So I call it policy plagiarism, much like a college student that's frantically trying to complete a term paper right before the deadline who might copy and paste their essay from the internet. I find that many lawmakers copy and paste their bill proposals from model bills that outside groups produce, including ALEC. ALEC is a major producer of these model bills. And so while we might think that that's troubling from the perspective of democracy, it's good for me as a researcher in the sense that I was able to put together a computer program that let me look for these instances of policy plagiarism where lawmakers had copied and pasted ALEC model bills into bills that they had either introduced or that they enacted. Uh, and I did that by crossing the country and collecting as many of these ALEC model bills as I could and then digitizing state legislative text as well. And so with that gathered, I was able to pinpoint these instances where, where lawmakers relied on ALEC model bills pretty frequently. And what I found was it tended to be the states that offered their lawmakers fewer staffers that met for shorter periods of time and that paid their lawmakers less, that tended to be more reliant on ALEC model bills. And I think that makes sense. And ALEC itself recognized this in internal documents that I talk about in the book. ALEC recognized that it could be especially effective when lawmakers just didn't have the resources on their own to write and pass legislation. And so ALEC could sort of step in as a private research assistant or legislative staffer for these lawmakers. So... You make an argument in your book that, that it's not just ALEC that people should be aware of, but actually this troika, these other two organizations that together make up a like a three-headed organization that's just really powerful, the, you know, the, the, the wonder triplets of conservative politics, you might say. So tell me about what those other two are, and then tell me why you consider them a troika, because I know that there's not just three conservative organizations. In the book, I refer to these three organizations, as you pointed out, as the right-wing troika. And I should say that I came up with that label well before the 2016 election and all the Russian interference in, in American politics. I think I might have gone with triplet uh, had I known about that. But as you pointed out, there are three organizations uh, that buttress one another in important ways on the right when we're thinking about state politics. One of those is ALEC, which we've been talking about. But since the 1970s, ALEC can count on help from the State Policy Network, which is a network of state-level, right-leaning and conservative think tanks. Uh, they've grown to have at least one in every state as of present day. And those think tanks produce research reports, media commentary, testimony, polling in support of ALEC model bills. And in many states, ALEC lawmakers work quite closely with these state policy network think tank affiliates. And that should come as no surprise because the state policy network got off the ground in part because ALEC's head in the 1980s helped them secure donors in the conservative donor community because he recognized that ALEC would be more successful if they had folks outside of the legislature helping ALEC inside of the legislature. So the state policy network is the second member of the Troika. The final and most recent addition to the Troika is Americans for Prosperity, or AFP. It was founded in 2004 
by the Charles and David Koch, the Koch brothers, the libertarian billionaires. And although Americans for Prosperity is the most recent addition to the Troika, in some ways it has grown to be um, the largest in scale. Uh, it's a federated advocacy group. That means it has a presence at the local level, at the state level, regional level, national level, much like a political party. It has grassroots volunteers, around 3 million, if we uh, are to believe AFP's reported numbers. And it has hundreds of millions of dollars in a campaign war chest that it can spend on advertisements and efforts to get out the vote in elections and lobby for legislation at the local, state, and national level. And it uses that clout to support many of the same priorities as ALEC. So why do I focus on these three organizations as being part of the Troika when there are many other conservative groups? It's because they overlap and reinforce one another's efforts. ALEC focuses on passing ideas through its model bills inside of legislatures, the State Policy Network focuses on building the policy case for those bills. And AFP provides the sort of grassroots muscle or heft, grassroots volunteers that will lobby their lawmakers and threaten them with retribution if they don't vote for and support ALEC model bills. I want to talk about unions. So again and again in your book, the Troika sets out to create laws to, to restrict the activities and reduce the political power of private sector unions, and even more so public sector unions, and reducing abortions, right? They're not, if I'm a business that wants to potentially have less environmental regulation on me, and yeah, some public sector employees may be involved in environmental protection, but, you know, most of them are teachers. So why did Alec and the other members of the Troika establish this as such a priority and maintain it? And then what did they achieve? You're exactly right that if you had to pick one issue that all three of these organizations have been focused laser-like on from the start of their, of their history, it's been trying to weaken the labor movement. And you're also right that it's not immediately apparent why a social conservative who cares intensely about gay marriage or abortion would be really focused on the labor movement. But I think that has been one of the most successful aspects of the Troika, and especially ALEC, is to teach activists and businesses that it's in their interest to think about public policy, not just as a series of one-off battles, but as a way that you can build long-term power. What do I mean by that? Take the example of labor unions. You know, ALEC is very clear in pushing measures to weaken unions that it's not just about weakening the unions per se. It's about weakening a political opponent who's helping to elect Democrats and pushing for progressive legislation across the board. And if you can take out unions, or at least substantially weaken them, you pave the way for later legislative accomplishments, even if you yourself are not very invested in the union issue. If you're a business, for instance, weakening the public sector labor movement means that there's a less, less of a likelihood that Democrats will be elected in the next round of elections, and therefore you're going to have an easier time enacting your priorities going forward. In separate work that I cite in this book with co-authors James Feigenbaum and Vanessa Williamson, I show that when states have passed measures to weaken labor unions known as right-to-work laws, those are laws that make it harder for unions to collect dues and revenue, that Democrats do worse at the polls up and down the ballot from the state legislature all the way up to the presidency. And as a result, state policy shifts to the right. So I think this is a great example among several that I cite in the book of how the Troika thinks about policy as a tool to demobilize 
and weaken their political opponents. I want to ask you a little bit about democracy and whether or not we should care. I mean, one way to look at this, right, is that anyone can form an organization in the United States under the laws. So conservatives have founded some organizations that are effective and use them to assemble, which is their right under the First Amendment, and to petition the government, also their right under the First Amendment, to have it do more of what they want. And they've succeeded. Okay, great. Sounds like this is great for democracy. But in your book, you list out some concerns. What are they? I 100% agree with your assessment that the creation of organizations to lobby government is well within the rights of of American citizens and and even of, of businesses. But I find the activity of the Troika problematic for democracy for a couple reasons. One is that many of the measures that the Troika is pushing weaken democracy. That is to say, they raise the costs to political participation or even make it impossible for people to participate in politics in some important ways. So I would point to, for instance, voter ID laws, making it more challenging for people to to cast ballots or to even register people to vote. I would also point to the attacks on labor unions. We know that labor unions are one of the most important ways that that lower-income people gain civic skills and are mobilized to participate in politics. And so by taking these interest groups away, you're weakening the foundations of democracy, particularly for lower-income people. I think that's one reason why we should be concerned about the Troika. Another reason is that the priorities that they're pushing tend to be incredibly unpopular with large majorities of the public. And I have a, a table in the book where I just go through and list what are the key priorities that the Troika is pushing and what percentage of Americans agree with that particular priority. And across the board on these top priorities, things like decreasing the minimum wage, things like ending paid sick and family leave, rolling back environmental standards at the state level, uh, lowering taxes on wealthy individuals and companies. Those are things that large majorities of Americans disapprove of. And so when the Troika wins, it is weakening the connection between ordinary Americans and what government does or does not do. If people agree with your your concern about democracy, then Alex, what should they do? In the book, I review a variety of different strategies for folks who might be concerned about the Troika, and I think some of them are more more likely to be more successful than others. I I talk about the role of campaign contributions. In the the book, I make the argument that were we to ban corporate contributions if we could, um, I don't know if that would move the needle all that much in the Troika's success, given that so much of what they do is not related to campaign giving. Instead, I think a more successful strategy is to take a page from conservatives' books and organize to talk to lawmakers and organize them, talk to voters and organize them all across the country, uh, not just in states that progressives have historically had a lot of strength in, the coastal states and in in some of the states in the Midwest, but rather across the whole country. I I interviewed the uh, head of ALEC during one of the key periods of growth that it enjoyed in the 1980s, and he made the point to me that he spent most of his time flying out all across the country to gain support for ALEC amongst both Republicans and Democrats. He invested a lot of energy in trying to build out their membership in each and every state. And as I talk about in the book, when progressives have tried to construct counterweights to ALEC, they have tended to do so either in a very thin way, for instance, just providing bill ideas on a website and hoping that they sort of fly off the digital shelf, 
or when they do build memberships of state lawmakers, they do so in states where progressives and, and liberals already have a lot of strength and not across the, the, the whole country. One piece that you mentioned as part of the problem and maybe also as, as a key to a solution is the information flow and the, the professionalism of state legislatures. Can you say a little about how we might increase the professionalism of state legislators and kind of tipping my own hat on this, my own organizational hat at SSN. I mean, we're pretty highly invested in the idea that getting better information, better research research to legislators is, we hope, a good idea. I think Alex's experience points to the really valuable and productive role that a group like SSN can have. It, I think Alex's experience shows that lawmakers are hungry for ideas, for research support, for research that they can turn into legislation. And there's no reason that Alex has to have a monopoly on this role across the states. If there are other organizations that can provide a higher quality information from more perspectives, I think that would be a very good thing. And I, I view SSN as, as, as helping to fill that role. Over the longer term as well, I, I would be uh, in strong support of increasing the staff and salary and legislative sessions across state lawmakers. Uh, I think it's quite striking that in so many states, legislatures only meet for a couple months. Lawmakers aren't really paid enough to make it their full-time job, and, and they might be lucky if they have one or two staffers they have to share with other lawmakers. So increasing that capacity, I think, would go a long way to reducing the dependence of lawmakers on these outside, uh, outside interest groups. Right. And you mentioned in your book that measures to make legislatures more professional aren't particularly popular right now. But there's also some reason to believe that people don't actually have particularly firm opinions about this. And is that right? I think that's right. As with many issues in the public that aren't well understood, I think there's the possibility for groups and leaders to help the public understand the connection between money and influence and legislative resources. Uh, it's true that you know right now it would be an uphill battle to convince, I think, a lot of voters to support pay raises, for instance, for, for their state legislatures. But it turns out that Americans care intensely about uh, excess and outsized influence of big money, corporate money in politics. And so if you had groups out there explaining that one of the reasons why big money, outside money from companies is so effective in shaping legislation is the lack of professional resources in the legislatures, I, I think you could start to build a positive case for reform. And what about this other argument that you make about countervailing power, right? That is to say that progressives could learn from conservatives. And if they did, one of the key things that they would learn would be about the type of legislative agenda to pursue. Can you say a little about that? I think that is an absolutely vital point. One of the most striking things in looking at the agenda that the Troika pursues is how much they pay attention to sequencing. They make the case that not only do you need to pass uh, labor cutbacks as soon as you gain full control of state government, but those cutbacks should come first because they will pave the way for later uh, later legislative battles. And when you look to what Democrats have done, you, you see far less of this thinking. When Democrats had the opportunity, for instance, to bolster labor unions under the Obama administration, they let it fall by the wayside. And I think it's quite telling that conservatives have this idea, right-to-work laws that hobble unions. That's the first thing that they propose when they gain power. But for Democrats, there really isn't much of an equivalent. What's the right-to-work equivalent on the left? And so I think going forward, 
Democrats and progressives need to think more about state legislation in particular that can build power over the longer term. Some of that involves, for instance, strengthening the labor movement, especially in the public sector. And some of that means showing the value of government programs and policies to to ordinary Americans in very concrete ways. If progressives are to do that, how do they ensure that they pass the moral test of democracy, right? You, You attempt to... I think, separate your own personal politics from the the way in which you evaluate whether or not the Troika is a positive for democracy, right? By noting, for example, that they push policies that are broadly un- unpopular. So if, if progressives are going to take a page from the conservative book, shouldn't we be concerned or, or how do we avoid the concern that they're also going to do something that future political scientists or, or you in 10 years will say, oh, This was a situation of um, an arms race where both sides got worse and worse for democracy. Uh, That's a great and tough question. And I think you're right that we should be separating out the implications for democracy from both the substantive effects and the political effects. And I guess the, the two questions I would ask are, is whatever reform you're evaluating, is it expanding the the political participation of Americans, or is it constricting it? And is it generally making government more responsive to what majorities of Americans want? Uh, or is it pulling uh, government decisions away from the preferences of, of majorities of Americans? Alex Hurdle Fernandez, thank you so much for coming on No Jargon. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for listening. For more on Alex Hurdle Fernandez's research, check out the show notes at scholars.org slash no jargon. No Jargon is the podcast of the Scholar Strategy Network, a nationwide association of over 1,300 scholars in 47 states. The producer of the show is Dominic Dermer. Our sound engineer is J.M. Baez. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And you can give us feedback on Twitter at NoJargonPodcast or at our email address, nojargonscholars.org. 